0: Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox. And for this episode, I spoke with Juan Camilo Cárdenas while the two of us were at the conference on the commons in Lima, Peru, a few weeks ago. Juan Camilo is a professor of economics at La Universidad de Los Andes in Colombia, where he has been studying institutions or rules of the game, as some of us think about them, and the role they play in affecting outcomes and social dilemmas. Juan Camilo has pioneered game-based experimental approaches to studying these situations, and the two of us discussed the application of this approach to both research and education during our conversation. Enjoy.
1: Back in the mid-90s, there was a revival of issues regarding um, game theory and its applications to commons problems. so from the standpoint of economics and theory, there was um, an interesting resurgence of how to use game theoretical arguments to study the problems of cooperation. And, and I'm talking about uh, works uh, by, by by Taylor and uh, also uh, works uh, by Balan and Plateau mm. uh, that were dealing with these ideas of how is this... Approach useful to get into solving cooperation problems. At the same time, there was a an interesting set of works in the um, ethnographic or field based type of studies, and of course, Governing the Commons came out in 1990. But also in 1994, there were um, the, the Rules, Games, and Common Pool Resources by Ostrom, Gardner, and Walker that came out. And, and that made a step further in saying, okay, Game theory says this, and we can test this in the laboratory, and we're going to run these experiments there in the laboratory and work to see what happens. And then there was a wealth of information coming out of laboratory experiments with public goods problems, prisoners' dilemma problems, and the like. Social psychology had been working a lot uh, in terms of experimental approaches to cooperation as well. Uh, Balan and Plateau wrote their couple of important papers and their book, Halting... In natural resource degradation in '96, I believe. So this is the mid '90s, and I'm in the middle of my building dissertation prospectus to do my my work. Yeah. I knew I was going to get into into the issue of commons. I had read all this stuff, from theory to experiments to f- field work to ethnographies, and Sam Bowles, who is one of my mentors, and and and. Uh, major influences in my work was very excited to see this behavioral revolution coming into economics and uh, providing new insights into why people do what they do regarding social preferences regarding pro-sociality regarding reciprocity trust and the like and Sam was a major uh, influence in suggesting that i get into that literature and why not get into testing in the laboratory, these kind of things. So there I was in a, in, a, in a juncture very interesting to see, okay, all this experimental work is done in the laboratory with college students. What do, they, do these students know about cooperation and collective action? And in the questions that I had in mind regarding managing a forest, managing an irrigation system or a fishery system, uh, but at the same time, I had a, a background before when I went to my PhD, a background in do, in working in the field with communities with participatory tools. Got it. And with that in mind, I began thinking, what if we put these things together? What if we take these participatory tools together with the laboratory kind of experiments together? and bring the laboratory to the field and test these things. But this was not being done at the time. Nobody had done any experiments of the, of this kind of public goods or, or common pool resources. Uh, later, uh, we discovered, interestingly, that Joe Henrik um, and Abigail Barr, both uh, working uh, from evolutionary anthropology and economics respectively were doing their field work for their dissertations simultaneously and each of us not knowing of each other doing this and abigail was doing her work in zimbabwe joe henrik was doing some things with the kunas in panama and the mapuches in the um, in chile and he was doing some things with the machigenga in peru uh, precisely where we are right now and interestingly we were all trying different things of trying to test these particular games of um, Trust and cooperation, and I was interested in common pool resources. So, without much background in people doing that, um, I began this conversation with Samuels about should we try this or not. Um, and I am glad that he pushed me to, to say, take the chance, go for it. It's a risky decision for a dissertation uh, project. Because you don't know where you're heading and with your dissertation, you're risking a lot right. in your
0: career. And it didn't sound like you had a very much of an established model for how this exactly. is done, like the nuts and bolts of it.
1: Exactly. But at the same time, there were some little hints okay. from theory and from some laboratory experiments that were saying, okay, there might be something here, but we don't know what is going to happen in the in the field. We don't know if right. this is going to be a disaster or this is going to produce extra information. And and that's the origin of all that And in 1997, I ran the first field pilots of these experiments. And then in 1998, I went full throttle with the entire field work throughout different villages in Colombia. And that's where the first uh, set of experiments in the field came about, combined with other participatory tools of collecting data of more qualitative nature. And then a number of papers emerged from, from those years. That's the origin. Since then... It's been a long time now. It's about twenty years or more of of producing these these papers and these resor- results. Um, there has been a lot going on, including and and for good. And the International Association for the Commons is a good community where a lot of this has happened in terms of replicating experiments of this kind, replicating and extending and varying the treatments in the field and there's now a huge literature in using experiments in the field to to test theories to compare institutional designs to compare different cultural settings ecological settings resource comparisons and and it's now i i would say within the commons community a well established um research array program, right? of yeah. research programs of tools of designs yeah. um and hopefully it's also coming into the teaching, and and I hope so, because this can enrich a lot what we knew already so far.
0: Okay. So is moving into the field motivated by, you know, one of the traditional critiques of experimental work, that it lacks external validity, lacks generalizability, so we're trying to kind of get more into what, you know, the real world, in quotes?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that was a lot of the original motivation. But in part, for my particular case, it was also about... How does this contribute to a better conversation between practitioners, communities, and researchers? Mm -hmm. Uh, That has always been one of the obsessions that I've had over my uh, research. Those relationships and how they work. Exactly. And how those dialogues happen to be. Can we improve the conversation in both ways? Uh, Between these practitioners, policymakers, policy designers, but also the researchers and also in people in the communities who are engaging this in a daily basis,
0: so we take that into account as we do our science. Is that right? Good? Exactly.
1: Okay. So, so it is about a little bit of what people today call citizen science. can, right. can okay. Get citizens involved in doing science, in understanding science, in participating, in influencing science, uh-huh. in asking science to be useful, uh, to have an impact, to to be ethically responsible. And that has always been throughout my, my career. Um, so, that, that means that if we improve this conversation, uh, maybe we can have even better experiments, we can have even better models. We have, And that includes the external validity, but probably through better external validity, we can get into other, more, into, into deeper questions and challenges that have to do with the ethical responsibility of research. And policy design, um, and and my 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 obsession is, we have to always we are be aware that what we're doing as researchers has an impact, even right. as abstract as it can be, it can have a tremendous impact. I mean, the very powerful purely theoretical models, at least in economics, have had major major impacts in real people. Mm-hmm. So um, everything can have an impact if it is rigorous and powerful and by powerful meaning where does it come from? where was it published by whom right. it was published um, so there's a responsibility there and improving these dialogues uh, we can feed each other's agendas in, in the good sense and therefore we can have a, a more productive development of what research is all about and intervention and, and policy making
0: okay great. And you mentioned this idea of, of complementing these games with, uh, I forget the word, you, you mentioned yeah, kind of qualitative information, participatory methods, etc. cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a necessary part of, of these methods? Is that you, compl- you have that complementarity? Is that something that you do to kind of address what you perceive as potentially uh, a shortcoming mm-hmm. of, of doing experimental games on their own? Like, how do you see that relationship?
1: I, I think... I I think they're definitely complementary. I I think it's an invitation to think about it. And at least in my own experience, very much in my research, I have written papers that emerge from improving the conversation outside of the experiment in the sense that the experiment in itself gives you data and those data are useful to understand what is happening but they don't give you all the data. Right. And there, there is a qualitative nature of the data that if you sit down afterwards with the people who were sitting in the lab like participating situation, the participating in the game, okay. and just open the conversation, what's, what was in your mind when you were doing that decision? Why do you think this happened here yeah. and it didn't happen there? And if you have a group conversation, a kind of focus group with the participants, right. you can enrich so much what you're doing that it can change your perspective, it can improve your next design, it can improve the understanding of your data.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so what would you say is the relationship between experimental work like you do and observational work so this Mm -hmm. distinction between experimental science observational science it occurs in ecology Mm -hmm. occurs in social science etc sometimes the discourse there can feel a little groupy where people Mm -hmm. kind of are you know criticizing the limitations that we all kind of know of these different approaches Do you think about the relationship between the experimental work and say, you know, in my own work, it's quite observational. I'm going into these mm-hmm. local communities and trying to have some mixed methods, all these kind of keywords that we try to implement. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think that the experimental work that you've helped lead relates to observational work case studies yeah. that we're trying to still figure out? What is a case study in environmental social science, we want to call it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that the the frontier or, or the borderline between observation and an experimental it's it's a little, there's a little, or wide maybe, and sometimes gray area in the following sense. Um, in many ways, any observational technique that involves a contact with the people that are involved in what you're studying um, can have at least a minimum level of change of mind in the person being quote-unquote observed. I don't think this is a, a a 100% passive exercise. What I'm trying to say is that even right. when you are asking a question in a survey, by asking the question, by popping the question to the person, and the person is going to go through a cognitive process of evaluating this. Right. Let, let me give you a, a, a simple example um, that that we have discussed this uh, at home um, about a uh, gender identity and depending on the people you ask switching from uh, dichotomous choice in the survey Mm -hmm. by saying what's your gender male, female all the way to what's your choice in the following menu of maybe five, six gender identities to people who haven't been exposed to this discussion this could be a very problematic issue. And then people might think, wow, what do you mean transgender? Right. What do you mean gay? What do you mean bisexual? And then there's going to be a process. What I'm trying to say is all, all possible um, observational techniques, quote unquote observational, are going to, to say something to They're not do, purely observational exactly okay. if you go to an indigenous community and you say i'm going to take a sample of your saliva because i'm going to go through your dna this has been powerful and disruptive right with indigenous communities to say what do you mean my dna explain to me what do you mean are you are you taking something out of me that is going to be owned by somebody else right. about who am i so it, this is what I'm trying to get at. This is in the extremes, but I, this is what I'm trying to get at. Every experiment that you do, even if you just go in, run the experiment, and leave, there's some kind of intervention there. Right. And this has triggered me since the very beginning, the very first experiment, this question of what happened after the experiment with these people. But not only that, people keep asking me, but not the, not the researchers, not in the experimental economics community. It's more in the field-based activities, practitioners, policymakers, and the like. And they say, and what happened after the game? Right. And this has been in my mind since then. And I keep working on that. And the more I see how these experiments develop, not only in the field but in the classroom, right. as a teaching device, I think there's something self-pedagogical about going through participating in experiment that gives you a very interesting experience. Right. Wow, I never thought about cooperation this way. I always thought other people behave that way. And now, because I went through this experiment, I, I, I get surprised that humans do this. Right. In a positive way sometimes, in a negative way sometimes.
0: So it's something inherently reflective about exactly, the process.
1: exactly. And that self-reflection process, to me, is very interesting, and we should continue exploring that and a lot of my current research agenda has to do with this both in the lab, mm-hmm. the classroom and the field lab, of what happens when you experience this? Uh, what happens in your mindset? Does it change your views about others? You change your change of views about your own behavior, your priors? Do you update your priors because of this experience of going through these experiments as a as a pedagogical experience?
0: Okay. And so do you in a do you view these field experiments as both uh, a data collection strategy, but also a kind of practical, maybe participatory intervention? Yeah. Or would you use that language? Or? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. And and in a sense, that's one of the things that, that I've been trying to pursue currently in going to a place where people live and on a daily basis they face these issues. And we come in with these tools and we... Run experiments and establish a conversation with the community, with the people, um, and in a rigorous experimental way. And that's a project we have been working recently. Uh, test with a community where we run the games, another community when we run the games with workshops, okay. and another community where we don't run the games, and compare these and see data afterwards about their behavior, both in the lab, in the in the experiments. But also afterwards, in their own daily behavior, in particular water and water consumption. Okay. That's something that we are doing right now. Okay, and we are seeing some differences that are hinting that just the experiments themselves are an intervention in a way.
0: Sure. Yeah. Partially because of this reflective process. That's that's the argument. That's right. the okay. the, the, that's... the conjecture. Yeah. Okay. Do you um, you know, I, f- I feel like in a lot of the comments, work, and in my own experience, I've seen. You know, there's conflict and collective action problems within groups. And then there's conflict and collective action between groups. Right. And one does not get you the other.
1: right?
0: right? Frequently, it seems like uh, collective action within a group actually can exacerbate intergroup conflict. Yeah. Maybe we see this every day in sports. Right. Yeah. Um, have you, in your experiments, had folks from different groups engage? And how does that kind of change the process or how you've right. thought so, about it?
1: So let me, let me give you uh, uh, an anecdotal... Story that's behind some other research that I've been doing exactly on that. In two thousand and eight, I went out for a sabbatical, and I kept thinking about these two words, competition and cooperation, as yeah. Um, colliding. Yeah. And and then I entered into the biological sciences and the evolutionary sciences to look at this. And, of course, you end up in multi-level selection or selection literature, which is fascinating. David Sloan Wilson and all that. Right. And how forth. that it's beginning to come into economics in mm-hmm. a very interesting manner. And with that in mind, I began to think about doing two things. One, I designed a course that is, in fact, called Cooperation and Competition. And that's a course that I taught for, for a few years. And it turned out to be very successful because it was a very transdisciplinary course also based in experiments in the classroom with the students to face the forces of competition and the forces of cooperation. One of the most fascinating things is to have the same students, even in one same class session, participate in a competitive market experiment, the famous double auction experiment, and see themselves behaving exactly as the invisible hand conjecture of if you just look out for yourself during this experience of exchange and you are truly competitive and understand the nature of competitiveness, you end up in this equilibrium of supply and demand and maximizing welfare and the invisible hand conjecture working okay. well if you design the market well. And then the same human beings, you put them right after into a cooperation problem and these same guys who were competing against each other just a few minutes ago, now turn into cooperation quickly they are they they don't become these aggressive competitors in prisoner's dilemma kind of games and then there's something that says well in this case if i become too competitive we are trapped in the defect defect equilibrium of the prisoner's dilemma or the free riding equilibrium and then they they are capable of switching the strategy and moving into, into cooperation. so Having said that, I began to think throughout this course and, and the experience of running the experiments in the, in the classroom that I needed to design a game in which I had the possibility of putting groups to compete against each other. Right. But they had to cooperate within each others. Right. And we designed an experiment for that exactly. We have published already a couple of papers with two of my doctoral students. So we designed an experiment to do exactly that. We have groups that play a cooperation game, a social dilemma, but also the setup of the game makes the groups compete because there's a ranking and therefore the the payoffs that they get depends on the overall ranking, the relative performance. Got it. And with this, in the group selection conjecture, you can have more cooperation within the groups, but making the groups compete against each other. Right. And there you turn this intergroup competition into a trigger device of cooperation within, and, groups. within groups and it works incredibly robust confirming all this and and to me it was a very interesting realization of that i have not done this in the in the field already uh, uh, because of other reasons uh, uh, right now over the last few years i've been acting as dean of the school of economics okay. so i haven't been able to do a lot of field. you're doing a few things yeah. yeah so this is one next stage which is understanding this probably a necessary dichotomy between conflict and cooperation. Maybe yeah. maybe we need to get more into into understanding what is happening. Archaeologists are working on this, paleontologists are working on this, and they are telling us stories to rethink how, for example, civilized societies emerged out of conflict, but also with the forces of cooperation. Yeah. So this interaction between conflict and cooperation, is, and cooperation is much more interesting than the usual dichotomy of um, the way it's usually phrased, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, it seems like it would have pretty profound implications for environmental governance yeah. too, right? Like scaling up environmental right. governance. Yeah. Um, cooperation within a group doesn't necessarily get you um, effective management of a large watershed. Exactly. Right? Yeah. If if yeah. that cooperation is actually being um, enabled by competition right. between that group and other groups in that watershed, right. how do we get these folks to actually cooperate when...
1: Exactly. Um, exactly, Javier Javier Basurto, who is a Duke and works a lot on small scale fisheries, has a has a nice paper he published a couple of years ago. I think it was uh, telling exactly that story from the field of cooperatives of fishermen who like the competition nature across between uh, groups cooperatives between yeah. groups, but at the same time understanding that there's an aggregate commons and there's also uh, the need for the Level, the necessary level of cooperation within the cooperative to be successful sure yeah
0: okay yeah.
1: um
0: and so we've danced around another topic um, that I might want to make sure we get to before we're done here which is you know um the role of this approach in education yeah. the role of this approach in economics education etc mm-hmm. um what what about you know using these games do you think is um helps them be effective in teaching students. I mean, I've, um, as I just, I mentioned to you before we began this interview, Elena Finkbeiner, who I know has worked with you, came to my class at Dartmouth about Mm -hmm. a month or so ago, and she led my students through a game. And it's just a very different process, and you can Mm -hmm. kind of watch the students get engaged with it. It it makes me wonder about human nature Mm -hmm. and kind of what what humans really want out of an educational experience. Mm -hmm. I was once watching some video about game design, actually, and some fellow said that, you know, people don't want to be taught. They want to learn, you know, it's, and so it's it's kind of the idea that like we all we don't want to be lectured to it as much as maybe we are. We kind of want to be empowered to kind of uh, take charge of our own education, right. even if we don't really know how to make that happen. Right. So I'm, I'm saying a lot of different things here, but do you think that, you know, this game-based approach can really help how we teach a lot of these tools because yeah. maybe it's more active, that the students are more actively learning, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So, so I think it has to do with the experiential part of this, that yeah. that being in the shoes of that abstract concept that you are teaching uh, in a lecture type yeah. of education, being in the shoes of those agents, actors, um, um, participants in the market, or in a situation that you are trying to model and understand, um, has a a powerful pedagogical experience. I have had students of mine that remember, 10 years later, the very first day of class that they had in my introductory economics course, in which I started the the, the class with one of these market exchange games. And they remember vividly the experience of that day of understanding the forces of competition in the marketplace so all these abstract concepts that we have in explaining the microeconomics of why uh, the exchange and the surplus and the consumer surplus and the producer surplus and the equilibrium and all these concepts that are many abstracts uh, many abstract but very abstract to to many of the of the people uh, that that try to understand economics become clear there in, in, in the experience through the experiment. For some people in the teaching side they, they fear that you're losing control of what you're doing sure. <laughs> because you are letting it go which is uncomfortable second, for a lot right, of us for, for, because it's like losing power Right. the, the second part is that uh, they think that they are missing the opportunity to explain abstract difficult concepts in the blackboard because you are using up all your lecture time into one of these games. That's another big concern. Uh, And to me, it's not the case. It's a little bit about the concept of flipped classroom that we're seeing recently. And this is one more chance to do flipped classroom. Maybe, this we need to work more, maybe engaging everybody face-to-face during a one and a half hour session of a class in an experiment well controlled that provides data and shows the data And then showing the data to the students, maybe triggers curiosity to say, I was part of those data. Those data came because of my choices and my decisions. And how different or equal am I to the rest of my fellow students in my class? And maybe I get more curious to see what does theory say about this? That's, again, one hypothesis. Having said that, there are recent studies, more rigorous experimental studies, who have tested different approaches of teaching concepts, at least in economics, using experiments, the typical classroom kind of thing. And there are some promising news around that say that um, after controlling for the right variables and the correct randomization, it seems that participating in these experiments can create a a learning experience in the sense of helping students to learn by themselves. And again, this is on the table and it's still up for 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 demonstration and, and robust testing but my feeling after all these years of using it in the classroom is in the classroom is that it's a powerful device to get people thinking critically about what they're reading in the textbook
0: right okay and so you mentioned um, that maybe one of the frontiers in applying some of these games in the field is looking at maybe intergroup conflict mm. which would you say there's a certain frontier in terms of applying them in the classroom? If there's things you could do that you haven't done yet before that mm-hmm. would just really get you excited or think mm-hmm. it would really help the students in a way that we're not seeing yet?
1: So in the classroom is where, where a bit of this agenda emerged. Okay. Because I was thinking, okay, we're going to run within the classroom. This was 60 students. And I was thinking, well, we can, we can run one big common pool resource for the entire class. Right. We can run separate smaller groups parallel sessions, but they are not interacting with each other. Right. And I also think, what if they have to interact across groups? And that's how I started. And I knew this was going to get tricky, sensitive, even ethically delicate, mm-hmm. in the sense that you, when you put people to cooperate, it's like, it's okay, it's fine, this is about pro-sociality. Right. But when you put people to conflict with each other, and, and there are grades involved, and there are incentives involved. So by the way, I never use Grades for incentivizing experiments. Right. I use either money or uh, chocolates or other
0: things. Gift certificate or something. Uh, Yeah, exactly.
1: So, but it gets gets sensitive because then you can get into very... So, if you do it in the right way and you're conscious of what you're doing, it gets very interesting because you are getting students involved through emotional processes. Mm -hmm. And these emotions are powerful from a pedagogical perspective and probably many people have had transform- transformative experiences in the classroom when there has been an emotional process emotional process can be of many kind of uh, affiliation of of attraction also of anger of also so if you if you control the right way but you allow some emotional process to happen they are very powerful so when you create conflict you can you, you have to be careful but it's i'm saying it's a it's interesting and it can be powerful to allow this because people are realizing that envy, competitiveness, anger, um, um, lack of trust, uh, suspicious of the other, prejudices, all these things that are operating all the time in real life. Part of our equipment is. You can bring, you know, exactly, you can bring them in there and play a role and see how people react and think about it. And then the pedagogical experience through the emotional process kicks in and stays there for a while.
0: So if we can be reflective, as you were mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. in the same way, in the field of students can kind of ask themselves, "Why do I feel this right. way? How do exactly. I actually, exactly. yeah, cope with that?" Right. And, okay. and as
1: an instructor, as a teacher, as a, as a, as a, a, a as a, a tri- as a trigger device, as a professor, you can you can trigger that conversation that you just said, a reflection process of what just happened. Why? Yeah. Why did right. you feel that way? How we? Why, why did we feel that way and how that relates to your life here in the dorms or in other classes or right. in general in society, the same way as I do in the field with communities. What we just observed in this game, how can we learn from that game and how we can set up the conversation? Right. So to me, it's a permanent trip between the lab, the field and the classroom. Yeah. and They are all related in many ways.
0: Okay. And so you mentioned earlier when we were walking over to this room, too, about the relationship between this approach and education and economics. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, social psychology and we hear about behavioral economics. Sometimes, honestly, I wonder what the difference is. I can't quite tell. It seems like they're both trying to do the same thing, but from different traditional yeah. disciplines. Yeah. Um, is there an important difference between those two for you? And how do you feel like um, this game oriented approach um, relates to either of them
1: right so I I, I am very much involved in within the economics profession and as a Dean I, I feel more and more responsible but I am also more aware of the responsibility we have in training people in economics uh, not only people who graduate as economists but people who get training in economics in general um, Economics is a very powerful discipline, and um, society has given—and by that I mean everyone in society in general—has given a lot of power to economics compared to other social sciences. First. Sure, yeah. Um, I always mention that in in many pictures of government cabinets when they're when they're in the meeting of the president with its cabinet, how close. The minister of finance of its equivalent is sitting to the president right it's not the minister what of is, rural sociology is, or or the education minister right. and that I mean. yeah that that shows this and and sometimes people complain against economics and to me it's more a call of why do we do we as as citizens and, and uh, opinion makers and 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 journalists and in general why do the society give so much power to economics so at least while it's it has so much power how is that power going to be exerted in a, in a responsible way and we as schools of economics training these people are going to be aware of that power because that power is dangerous uh, and it can be harmful or it can be helpful uh, because it's powerful but so what that means is how are we training people in economics in general in economics And how we are training economists about these things. And it is absolutely fascinating that grad school in economics has transformed itself at the graduate level in introducing all these behavioral insights. Right. Coming from behavioral economics, experimental economics, laboratory work, field work, and the like, has really transformed the theory, the models, the assumptions, the the techniques, everything has been transforming grad school. And then you move to undergrad level and not much has happened in the last 60 years. Right. We're still teaching basically the same thing that Paul Samuelson was teaching in his principal's book 50, 60 years ago. Um, it hasn't kicked in in undergraduate training. The important part here is that very few people get training in economics at the grad level right? in society. Yeah but many people get training in undergraduate level in economics and even outside of economics. Business schools, finance, but also many other social sciences get at least one introductory course in economics. And these introductory courses are based on the old, outdated models and assumptions, textbooks, techniques, and the like. We need to transform that. There are things happening. I've been involved in a, in a project, a collaborative project around the world that is called Core the Economy. And this core project came out of exactly that concern from a number of people who have been working around. One of them is Sam Bowles and Wendy Carling, who is at Oxford and UCL, who are doing exactly this, that they are thinking, How can we rethink how we teach economics? How do we get introductory economics from the start right. to think about pro social behavior? Problems of power, problems of inequality, problems of the environment. These are the things that most people are concerned with today, including people who want to enter into economics. Why don't we teach updated tools, updated models, models that are today inspired by all this new research that has happened in the last years. Why don't we bring that in into the training of economics from the very first day? Which we can. We can tell them about the ultimatum game in day one and the ultimatum game shows that people are not selfish that they can be fair that they care about fairness and that fairness can interact with the marketplace or other situations and depending on power and inequality it can provide efficient or inefficient outcomes there's nothing of that in the introductory textbooks that most people get their training from and they stop there because they don't go into grad school
0: right yeah they enter the world and they've got this framework in their mind etc okay um Okay. Yeah. I mean, so it seems like it would help to have, you know, develop some of these pedagogical tools, a, cur- a curriculum really based on like introduction, introductory behavioral economics, et cetera, the way we have for like introductory micro and macroeconomics. et cetera. Okay. I mean, so a, a couple of final questions, if you don't mind. I mean, um, a term that's been floating around my head um, throughout this discussion has been human nature. Yeah. Um, you know, within social science, we talk about this sometimes, sometimes we kind of avoid it, et cetera. Yeah. As soon as we start talking about evolution and group selection and all that stuff, right. it seems like it's hard to avoid human nature. And also I wonder, you know, so I grew up playing games, yeah. right? I love games. I love them in a, in, in a way that I don't love a lot of the other things that I now think about professionally as a kid, right? I, I would, <laughs> um, And so I wonder whether part of the power of these games relates to human nature and, and maybe that's partly why they're so engaging for students, mm. And is that also maybe why they help us reflect on our human nature or Mm. how do you think about, do you use the term human nature in like your professional work and does it relate to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about?
1: So, I, I mean, you mentioned that you grew up with games and maybe you were talking about role games and dungeons and dragons and or the kind I don't of want to admit games. too
0: much, you know. Okay, I know, but, but board games and like I right. certainly played but, but like board games included role playing games too, and right. I mean, that seems to relate to what we're talking right. about. Is that the part of the power here right. seems to be that students, whomever, are kind of role playing, right? So, kind of, they are.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, from from chess all the way to the most complicated games, and um, dominoes and the like. And, and why am I mentioning this? We, we had a beautiful experience in my household when my kids were growing up and becoming of age of thinking about board games. Uh, and, and we started to play more interesting, complicated games. I remember when I was young, I was very interested in playing Risk. Yeah. Which is one of the old games. So we brought Risk to play with my kids and my kids hated it. Oh, really? Because my daughter and my bro- and my son, they were not being able to conquer each other they just <laughs> okay. felt maybe because they grew up in a household in which they heard just too much about cooperation right yeah so it it becomes boring if you don't play risk the way you're supposed to play in the sense that so it becomes more complicated and then came another game to my house called Catan
0: so Catan yeah
1: so a dear friend of mine his name is Daniel Castillo gave it to me in my I think it was my 40th birthday And my kids loved it because they didn't have to kill each other. They didn't have to destroy each other's wealth. They could play along. Of course, there are elements of competition and cooperation and the like. All this to say the following. Games in general, in the most abstract definition, involve strategic interaction. I think this is key here. And it's going to be connected to human nature. Strategic interaction meaning two things. One, that you are thinking about what the other is going to do and if we get complicated in a game theoretical way you think about what the other thinks of what you're going to do or you think what the other thinks that you think that the other will do and K-level strategic there's there's experimental work on this how how much backward induction you do to these things but in general we do at least one step right I think most of the time most human beings when they're going to do something they're going to think how do I think about the reaction of this other entity or right. my, my my action? That's very at the at the at the internal most profound uh, component of human nature. It's, it's very deep ingrained in, in humans. We know this. There's enough neurological research on this. We have heard about the mirror neurons. We have heard about all these um laboratory support for how people uh, anticipate what the others are doing so i I think that's important about the games the other important part of the games i think i have mentioned which is throughout this interaction we behave in ways that are more complex and and i think fortunately more interesting that are very calculative Mr. Spock, Star Trek tri, 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 type of uh, rationality. Right. Uh, we get involved there in the System 1, System 2, speaking of Kahneman language. Right. Uh, we get the emotions there, we get the rationality there, and sometimes we do this calculation of the strategic interaction, but also thinking about the emotions of the other. And this dates back to sympathy in Adam Smith all the way to now with support for this. And that Combination of a strategic interaction and getting these emotions involved together create a very interesting justification argument for using games as a pedagogical tool, as a policy dialogue tool, mm-hmm. as a research tool. I think. Okay. Yeah.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I think just one or two more questions. So, um, for someone who's thinking about starting to implement some of these games in their work. Um, Would you have any advice for someone who's maybe got a field site doing a dissertation and is thinking, well, maybe I could implement this, but I'm, you know, a little nervous about how it could ultimately go. What should I do?
1: I I, I think that that one of the interesting things that I suggest to my students who want to get involved in this is this is something that you can do from the bottom up in terms of scaling up um, Testing the waters, getting your, yeah. your, your your feet wet. By that I mean, think of a particular game situation you want to study. Think of a particular pilot test right. with people that you trust and trust you to try and fail without a problem. Yes, And right. then, then try a pilot more structured way with students and other students from other disciplines. And then you can continue scaling up. And as you go from, from small piloting all the way to scaling up and replicating, it's a huge learning uh, uh, process. Okay. And you can start very cheaply with very little resources all the way to scaling up to more costly things. You don't have to put together an entirely field operation from the beginning all and, at once, and right? waste a lot of money because you failed. You can start this by trial and error. So... Trial and error and repetition is key here.
0: Seems like a very generalizing yeah. principle, really, yeah. right? Like, start yeah. small, fail small, exactly. and continue. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. It's something like that.
0: Okay, yeah. um, so the final question, I think, is... is um, are Moving forward, are there any kind of hopes you have for the field of the commons and the mm. way you're engaging with it, etc.? Are there things that you kind of hope happen in the next 5, 10 years with all yeah. of this kind of work?
1: Yeah, I, I hope experiments in general and games as, as a research tool... Uh, move out from becoming only a thermometer kind of tool to measure things mm-hmm. all the way to an intervention tool more like vitamins that you work sure. with <laughs> yeah. that, that change take your daily game and, and maybe this, these experimental tools become uh, a policy making tool a uh, conversation tool in general as I said the more I move around between the classroom, the lab and the field lab, the more I learn that we need to improve the conversation and definitely using these experiments as tools for improving the conversation between you and your students, you and policymakers and policymakers and community members, I think is going to enrich a lot. So we, we need to, to work on on getting more and more use of, of these games as tools for all these purposes. Not yeah. only as data gathering tools. Right.
0: Yeah, it'd be quite interesting if someday, you know, you open up a policy instrument, policy analysis textbook and right after taxes and subsidies, you have a category called games. <laughs> right? As a Maybe. kind of intervention. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and some people are thinking about that, okay. at least at the behavioral public policy level. Yeah. And then the, the, the thing is, if we, if we make public policy more behavioral oriented, uh, then a good tool to make that relevant and, and powerful and, and practical... Could be through using games, right? Yeah. Well,
0: um, you know, thank you very much for your time. If thank there's, you. is there anything else you'd like to say before we kind of wrap no, up? If it...
1: thank you, thank you for for the invitation for the conversation, and I'm glad we're having that exactly during this conference because this is a conference about all these issues. All this these is issues, a conference yeah. that gets together policymakers, NGOs, organizations, practitioners, researchers, and it's the precise message that we want to convey in this conference.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form. Here, we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.